Uh, car engines are a mystery to me. Uh, I learned a long time ago that I need someone else to work on them for me. Uh, it was the day I tried to change the oil in my first car. I thought, how hard can it be? But I somehow managed to drain the gearbox oil instead. Uh, and the gearbox seized up on the freeway halfway between Gosford and Sydney. So now I make sure I use someone authorised and accredited to work on my car. It seems obvious enough, doesn't it? Uh, to use someone qualified to do what you can't. But most Australians make the same mistake when it comes to their relationship with God. They think they can look after it themselves. It's DIY relationship with God. They think they're qualified and competent. They think the problem is not that bad, that the solution is simple, that they're not that sinful, that God's standards are not that high. They think that a donation here or there will satisfy God, or keeping a few rules, or repeating a few words, not eating fish on Friday, attending church once a week, trusting their family traditions. They think that a pass mark is all that God requires, that 51% of good deeds will somehow cancel out 49% of bad deeds. And they ignore God's own authorised and accredited service representative, Jesus. The one who fixes our relationship with God. Maybe you don't want to hear this. Uh, that you have a problem you can't fix yourself. Because we all like to think we're competent, don't we? We like to think we can deal with things on our own. And, and perhaps... You're slightly offended that I'm suggesting this. But this is far too important to worry about hurt feelings. Far more important than the health of your car, your life depends on it, your eternal destiny. The stark truth is you can't fix it yourself. Your guilt is greater than you realise. God's standards are higher than you can understand. Your situation is more hopeless than you thought. But the solution is also far simpler than you would ever imagine. Because the God of the universe, your creator and your judge, offers you his qualified, authorised service representative, Jesus, who is powerful and effective and even better, he's free. Now, for the Hebrews Christians, the ones who receive this letter, they have a similar problem. They are being tempted to ignore Jesus as their high priest. But rather than think they can fix things on their own, like Australians, they're tempted to go back to the Jewish priesthood. And so these chapters, 4.14 to 7.28, they're about presenting God's solution. They're about confirming Jesus' credentials. Uh, look at how it begins in chapter 4, verse 14. It sums up, I think, the whole argument from 4.14 to the end of 7. The next three chapters then just explain what's said here in 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He's not just any high priest. He is a great high priest because he doesn't just go through the curtain in the earthly temple into the Holy of Holies. That just represents heaven. Jesus goes through the heavens into God's very presence. So don't let go of him. That's the big idea. We can be confident when we stand before God As verse 16 puts it, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has gone into God's presence himself so we can be sure of our welcome. Chapter 5, it continues to compare Jesus with earthly priests. Firstly, discussing the authorisation of priests. Earthly priests, chapter 5 verse 1, They're selected and appointed by men. But Jesus was appointed by God himself. Verse 5, he's been appointed as a son. Verse 6, he's been appointed as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We'll come back to Melchizedek in a few minutes. Just hold that thought. But before we get to Melchizedek, the writer needs to stop. He's introduced this idea of Melchizedek and he thinks, all right, before I start on Melchizedek, You you just need to stop and just re-energise. He's going to give them a bit of a pep talk. And that pep talk goes all the way from 5.11 to 6.20. Now, I've uh, I've lectured at uh, Christ College for a number of years, uh, and because I I, I lecture uh, part-time, they very kindly put all of my lectures in one go, a three-hour block. Uh, It's very convenient for me, but three hours in a, in a row, it, it's hard work for students, right? Yeah, yeah, Cheryl can appreciate that. Three, especially uh, when it's from 6pm to 9pm, which, uh, that's tough work after a day at work. So sometimes, halfway through my lectures, say 7.30, I say, all right, stop, stand up, walk around, swing your arms around, take some deep breaths, wake up, you need to concentrate. Now, that's what I think the writer is doing here for his hearers at chapter 5, verse 11. Perhaps he imagines they're five chapters in, their eyes are starting to glaze over, their their heads are nodding. They need to focus. He's about to tell them about Melchizedek. (laughs) They need to have all their wits about them. It's going to take some commitment. So he begins, verse 11, We have much to say about this. I think he means Melchizedek. But it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. It's literally, you've become lazy listeners. The problem is not though that it's 8 o'clock at night. The problem is they're spiritually lazy. And it's all to do with their diet. The more junk food you eat, the unhealthier you will be. That's true with your physical body, but it's also true in the Christian life. Our choice of spiritual food determines what sort of Christians we'll be. And the sad news is these Jewish Christians have been happily eating spiritual junk food, comfort food, easy to digest but no nutrition. Verse 12 says they should be teachers by this stage, but they're stuck drinking milk. 
They're spiritual babies. Which means, verse 13, that they never grow up. They never consume the food that will put on spiritual muscle. Like Jesus says to take up your cross and lay down your life and follow him. Jesus says to lose your life so that you can gain your life. But it seems like these Christians, that's a bit risky. Uh, They might be persecuted if they take their faith as seriously as that. And so they don't apply themselves to learning what it means to follow and obey Jesus. Verse 13 says they're not interested in the teaching about righteousness, about maturity and obedience. And so they're commanded at the start of chapter 6 to grow up, to start eating real food, healthy food, leave the baby stuff, says the writer, go on to maturity. Listen hard to the stuff that will change your life. The stuff that if you're serious about it, well, it could get you into trouble. You could be persecuted. Now, one of the five outcomes we're seeking to grow in people as we grow people as followers of Jesus, uh, there are the five. I'm hoping that you're at least by this stage, you you can recognise what the five areas that we want to develop in people. We want them to love God, to love others, to be shaped by God's word to be serving one another, to be on mission, to be looking to tell people about Jesus. Now, the one I want to focus on this morning is being shaped by God's word. Being shaped by God's word, it happens here at church. It happens as you read the Bible for yourselves day after day, year after year at home. And it happens in our weekly home groups where we focus to study God's word together. Together, we notice things that we don't notice on our own. It's funny, I sit all week in my study, studying the Bible, and then I go to a home group and someone says something and I say, I never saw that. It's great when we can study God's word together. Together we can ask one another uncomfortable questions about what it means practically, what it means in your marriage, your work life, your priorities in how you spend your money and how you speak about Jesus. In home groups, we pray for one another. We support one another and and hold one another accountable as we try to live out what we learn. The Bible verse there, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says that God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But God's word can only do that if we allow it to, if we choose to eat solid food, if we come to God's word expectantly, humbly, not just to study it like we study a maths textbook so that we might know more, but we want it to actually shape us. We want to be changed by it. Now, rebuking, correcting and training, that's not comfortable. That's difficult. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It takes courage to allow God's word to do that, to let others ask questions uh, that probe how and why we do things. 
but there is grace and strength in God and in his people uh, if we're courageous enough to let his word do that. Let's leave the elementary teachings. Let's go on to maturity. Let's allow ourselves to be shaped by God's word. Well, that's the encouragement from the uh, writer to the Hebrews. That's the positive encouragement, but he also gives a negative warning. Uh, That's from verse 4 of chapter 6. Your eternal salvation depends on going on to maturity. It's dangerous to choose comfort over challenge. It's dangerous to choose junk food over nutritious food. It's dangerous to choose lazy listening over practical preaching and costly commands. The listeners are scared of the earthly consequences if they grow in maturity. They may be persecuted. But Hebrews says there are eternal consequences if you stay immature. And from verse 4, he describes people who feed on junk food, spiritual junk food, and don't grow. People who sit in church week after week, year after year, tasting all the good stuff, but never really feeding on it, never really letting it change them. Verse 4 says, these people, they were once, they've, they've once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the coming age. They've seen some amazing things. And then verse 7 and 8 says, they're like farmland that drinks in the rain of God's goodness, but produces thorns and thistles rather than a useful crop. And and the Hebrews writer says they are in serious danger. There's, they're at the, in danger of being cursed and burned up. It's real and immense. Their salvation is at risk if they continue to feed on junk food and not eat solid food. But the opposite is also true. From verse 9, people who feed on the good things of God, on solid food, who work hard to listen and learn and grow, they end up healthy. They drink in the rain of God's word and then they produce a useful crop and they receive God's blessing rather than his curse. Now the writer is confident that his listeners are this second group. He's seen the evidence of their maturity, their obedience, their hard work. But they have to keep listening well, not be lazy listeners, putting it into practice. So verse 11, he continues, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what's been promised. Keep going with what you're currently doing, he says. God actually wants us to be sure and confident. He wants us to inherit what he's promised. Uh, And his promise is trustworthy and solid. Verse 13 to 17 uh, talks about how he confirmed to Abraham his promise with an oath. On myself, 
he said. And then notice verse 18, why God promised on oath. God promised Abraham something in uh, maybe 1500 BC. Why? So that, verse 18, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Isn't that incredible? God promised Abraham on oath, then had it recorded in scripture so that we could read it 3,000 plus years later to encourage us, so that we would take hold of God's promises and not give up. God wants us to be sure of our hope. Notice how the hope is described, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, our hope, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Our hope follows after the ground of our hope, the source of our hope, Jesus. Jesus enters God's presence, not the earthly temple, he enters the heavenly sanctuary where God himself is and he serves as a high priest forever. Now that truth, as we trust that truth, that's an anchor for our soul. Just like a boat anchor is firm and secure on the ocean floor and stops the boat from drifting around, that truth about where Jesus has gone and what he's doing, that keeps our souls secure, helps us not to drift. Look, I was tempted to give you another Greek lesson this week. That the word for anchor, guess what it is? Anchor. <laughs> anyway, I just noticed that. Uh, oh, no. And so we actually, notice we come back to Melchizedek again. And, and I think that's the, the signal that he's, he's going to get back on track. Uh, the energising little break is over. Uh, 5.10 mentions him. Melchizedek, all right, you need to wake up. 6.20, reintroduces Melchizedek. All right, now you're awake, let's get into it. Uh, They're like two brackets that start and finish the the little detour. And so chapter 7, we finally come to explain Melchizedek because all of these questions about how Jesus is different centre on this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. Uh, Now, he's only mentioned in four other verses in the whole Bible, apart from here in Hebrews. There are three verses in Genesis 14. There's one verse in Psalm 110. Now, you can get a rough biography of uh, Melchizedek if you look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. Back in Abraham's time, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which later became known as Jerusalem. We don't know anything about his ancestry. We don't know how he died. But he's described in in Genesis as a priest of the Most High God. So he's a king and a priest. And he comes into the Bible storyline because one day Abraham is returning from a battle. He's had to rescue his troublesome nephew Lot and he's captured... Anyway, long story short, he's coming back with the spoils of the battle. And he meets Melchizedek and he gives Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of everything that he's captured. And then Melchizedek blesses him. 
So just keep that little story in your mind. Uh, the other reference to Melchizedek is Psalm 110. We've already seen that quote uh, back in chapter 5. Uh, and again in chapter 17, uh, and there's this quote from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now Psalm 110, it's uh, God speaking to uh, a king, he's, he's promising Israel a king, but he won't just be a king, he will be a king who's also a priest, like Melchizedek. He'll be a king and a priest. Now what Hebrews is saying in, in these chapters is that that promise in Psalm 110 comes true in Jesus. He's the fulfilment of that psalm. He's become a priest in the order or after or the likeness of Melchizedek. Now the rest of chapter 7 shows us how Jesus is like Melchizedek. So firstly verse 2, Melchizedek, his name, Melech, Tzedek, means king of righteousness. Sound familiar? It's Jesus. Secondly, they were both kings of Jerusalem. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey and was, uh, was uh, recognised as king by the people. So they were both kings of Jerusalem. Three, uh, the old name for Jerusalem was uh, Salem, or in Hebrew, Shalom, which means peace. Yeah, so Melchizedek was, in a way, the king of peace. Sound familiar? Jesus was the king of peace. Finally, verse 3, this one's a little tenuous, perhaps you might, uh, you might think. We don't know where Melchizedek came from or how he died. We've got no record of his genealogy. So there's a sense in which he's without beginning or end. Well, at least we don't have a record of his beginning or end. And so just like Jesus, Melchizedek lives forever, at least in the account of his life. He lives forever, just like Jesus. So there's a few ways in which Jesus is like Melchizedek. Uh, then verses 4 to 10, uh, they explain how, Me how Melchizedek is actually a better priest than the Jewish priests from the tribe of Levi. So verse 4, Melchizedek was so great, Abraham gave him uh, money or gave him uh, a tithe. And then he blessed Abraham. So in a sense, verses 5 to 9 say the whole Jewish race who Abraham was the ancestor of paid tribute to Melchizedek because their father was Abraham. And so what that means is that the whole Jewish race is less important than Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek blesses them, and so he's greater. So what's the point of the history lesson about this guy, Melchizedek? Well, it's all got to do with Psalm 110. Because in this psalm, God is promising to send Israel a priest in the order of Melchizedek. To send a priest who is greater than the priests they currently have. There must be a problem with the old priests if they need to be replaced. Now that's what uh, Hebrews 7.11 says. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come 
one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now Jesus gets introduced here. Jesus was needed because God promised someone who would come to replace Aaron, the priests of Levi. So how is Jesus better than the priests of Aaron? Well, look at verse 16 for the comparison. Earthly priests qualified because of their ancestry. They were part of the family line of Levi. But Jesus has become a priest, verse 16, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Now, what a great phrase that is. He qualifies because he defeats death. He doesn't qualify because he gained a theological degree. He doesn't qualify as a priest because he has the family pedigree. He qualifies because of the power of an indestructible life. By comparison, verse 23, the old priesthood needed successes because they kept dying. But verse 24, Jesus lives forever. So he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Can you see the comparison? Jesus is eternal and indestructible and effective and authorised. So don't settle for someone who can't do the job, whether it's you or whether it's a priest. An earthly priest can't bring you to God, but Jesus can. He saves completely. We normally focus on the death of Jesus as a priest, but notice here it's his resurrected life that saves, that makes him effective as a priest, because he always lives to intercede. It's why we don't have a cross with a Jesus still hanging on it, because he's alive, he is interceding for us now. From the time of his resurrection until the end of time, whenever someone asks God for forgiveness through Jesus, Jesus will stand up and say to the Father, yes, that one trusts me. I authorise his forgiveness. Every time with no exceptions. And so we come to the conclusion. Verse 26. He's just the high priest we need. Verse 26, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. What more can be said? When you're powerless to fix a problem yourself, you need someone authorised and accredited, like my mechanic. Now that's what Jesus is, the authorised, accredited one. He's gone through the heavens, appointed by God himself. He's an eternal priest, Authorised by the power of his indestructible life, always living to intercede for us. Cling to him. Don't trust yourself. You may think you can approach God on your own. You may think you can service your own car and don't need to be authorised or accredited, but you can't. I'm sorry to say it, don't trust yourself. On the one hand, don't despair at your sinfulness that you'll never be good enough. 
And don't be proud of your performance that God will accept you on the basis of that. Don't don't be either of those two things. It doesn't matter how you've performed. God will forgive your sin and hear your prayers because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's about the power of his indestructible life, not the relative goodness of yours. So hear the encouragements from our passage today. 4.14 Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 4.16 Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 6.18 Jesus has entered the inner sanctuary before us on our behalf So take hold of the hope offered to you and be greatly encouraged because this hope is an anchor for your soul, firm and secure. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. Help us to rejoice in him, to trust him, to hold on to our hope. Uh, Amen.